Hello and welcome to the Postscript. Welcome indeed. So you had an exhibition recently, Thomas. Yeah, that's right. I had an exhibition with the artwork for the podcast up in the north of Norway. I was invited to be artist for a, a jazz festival in my hometown in this beautiful gallery called Budogor. I took a whole bunch of the digital drawings and then I had them printed on these aluminium plates and laminated and exhibited in this big, beautiful space. Yeah, and, um, and it's artwork from this podcast. Yeah. Most of the images, they're about a meter in width, except for the Ishii the Killer artwork, which is two meters wide. And that's, of course, the image of uh, Kakehara cutting his tongue. A very confronting, uh, <laughs> intense uh, image. Yeah, it's uh, intense. And it's great. And, yeah, and it worked really well, I think. Uh, I was, was really happy with that. And um, I had a performance where I was dressed in these rags with white cloth over my eyes with bleeding spots in front of the eyes and performing a, a little written piece about seeing without eyes and how eyes are judgmental and in a bad world good images are lies um, <laughs> kind of reflecting a little bit around ideas of interpreting images and stuff and I did that with Egelushin he did the sound for that under the guise of Dionysus which is one of his many alter egos yeah. Yeah, mu- musical uh, Ali- personas aliases yeah He's a guy I've worked with a lot of on short films and stuff and occasionally on performances. And You may also recognize him from Greek mythology. Yeah. He was a god back in yeah. the day. That's where he's gotten the, the name from. Oh, it's not the actual god. It's not the actual god. Okay. Uh, that specific persona is very kind of techno-based. So, so we had a kind of a intense heartbeat as a base for the performance and then distortions of sounds and, and the microphone as well. I'm surprised to learn that you weren't actually collaborating with a Greek god. Well, sometimes I am. <laughs> sometimes uh, it's just people yeah and that's good enough for me but yeah that was really fun and if you're interested in checking that out you check out our instagram i put up some photos of that so you can see me dressed as a weird creature in front of uh, huge images from the podcast who wouldn't want to see that honestly i would say you looked amazing oh thank you, you. looked like a real crow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was really fun but uh, i thought maybe we should uh, take this opportunity to uh, you know talk about Lynch in general or, or other things inspired by Lynch because uh, there's so much to talk about with his filmography I feel and... there is like you could go on forever like even just talking about his influence on video games mm. like there's so much but yeah did you have anything in particular in mind well I feel like in the official episodes we're talking about Eraserhead and we talk about Inland Empire and they're kind of the start and the end of his, his film career it'd be interesting to contextualize them a little bit just talking about his filmography as itself I mean we started in the last episode talking about like how Dickensian Elephant Man is and it's totally so different. It's really funny and really charming and, and it's very heartwarming and not all of his films are surrealist nightmares. You know, some have these really I mean, heartwarming... He can he can throw together a, a really good straight up just drama. Definitely. It's not like everything he does is this nightmarish... <laughs> Lynchian hellhole. Yeah. I mean, most of it is, but yeah, most of it is. He, he can do whatever, basically. But it's interesting. After Dune, he starts really coming into his own as a director of feature-length mm. movies he's made on his own. Mm. You have Blue Velvet, of course, and Wild at Heart mm. during the '80s, and they're really like the first like true like Lynch movies 
the type of movies you will continue to make during the 80s and 90s. Mm. And I love them. I think like probably one of my favorite of his movies is Blue Velvet. It is very good. And it's like, a, it's this great crime thriller as well. And Yeah, it's, it's a very tight thriller, mm. but it does have these weird aspects. But it's one of those Lynch movies that don't go like extremely far with the weird stuff. Mm. It's always there looming, mm. but it's also a very tightly controlled thriller. Mm. And I love that. It's a very good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the intensity is in the characters. Dennis like Hopper Dennis Hopper. Is so terrifying. I mean, he must have some serious, intense baggage, that man. The way <laughs> he manages to bring forth that energy is so violent and terrifying. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's he's such a predator in that yeah, movie. Yeah. He's so horrible. He's such a good villain. Yeah. I mean, he's always been a good villain. Like, mm. yo, he was the villain in Waterworld. <laughs> Remember yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great fun. in that, too. It's pretty fun. He's super over the top there, yeah. but like in Blue Velvet. He's also like extremely intense and over the top, but yeah. it's also very tightly controlled. But he's such a complex character. Yeah. All the characters are kind of, there's so many levels to them. I mean, Eraserhead is a great movie, but this one has a lot of psychological complexity to it, I think. For sure. I mean, Eraserhead is almost symbolic. Like, it almost feels like a work of symbolism. But also in the same sense that, like, a Dali painting is, like, very interesting, but doesn't necessarily have, like, a meaning. And I think the same with the Razorhead. It does have emotional truths and symbolism to it, but you can't just unlock it with a key. But Blue Velvet, for instance, like it's a straight up thriller, but also has a lot of the elements from a Razorhead, like mm. sort of behind the scenery looming and, and ready to make themselves known at any point. I think Blue Velvet is, is the kind of film that you can easily like without necessarily being into David Lynch's thing. I mean, it's still pretty intense and, and horrific, but it's much more easily accessible in for many sure. ways. For sure. I mean, you don't have to be into like experimental mm. art house to mm. like Blue Velvet or even Wild at Heart. Mm which is also like a pretty good like well-made movie that you don't need to be like some weirdo obsessed with cinema yeah. to, to get into I mean they both have these dreamlike qualities to them like the opening of Blue Velvet with the white picket fences yeah. and the neighborhoods and stuff it has this kind of nostalgic glow and sheen that feels very dreamlike and it becomes very nightmarish and with the insects and that sort of stuff yeah for me, Wild at Heart is a bit more surreal. Mm. Well, it's more playful. Yeah, it's more playful, but the casting and, mm. and the, the acting and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes more into the, the sort of expressive, playful. And it uses imagery from Wizard of Oz. And, you know, it, it also has these more like iconic one-liners with Nick Cage talking about his snakeskin jacket and, and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's great, though. I love yeah. the sort of beat of that movie. Yeah. So... It's almost him as his most playful in a sense. Yeah, I love Nicolas Cage in that movie. Yeah. He's so perfectly cast yeah. in that character. That's how I imagine Nicolas Cage is mm. in real life. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe, yeah. I think that's uh, pretty spot on. Yeah, at that time, he was probably pretty just himself. And Laura Dern is also really good. He's generally good in almost anything yeah. she's in, but yeah. especially in Lynch, she's usually very spot on. Mm. I gotta say, I love the casting of her as Diane. Yeah. The return. Like yeah, that's... She, because she was always this mystery character in, in the original Twin Peaks. Yeah. And then I was like, what fucking actor would yeah. be able to do that character? Mm. I was like, yeah, Laura Dern. Yeah. It's yeah. perfect. It fits very well into, as you say, his filmography as a whole, as a contained thing. I think it's worthwhile talking about Dune as well, especially these times with the new films that fairly recently came out. Did you see it, by the way? I uh, know. Well, it's good. Uh, most people like it. Uh, I do like it. I do have a couple of minor gripes. Like, they have so many scenes of this actor, Sedana. 
turning around with spotlight right into the camera and she's looking into the camera. Yeah. And that makes sense a couple of times, but they like they keep doing it over and over again. And I get it. She's going to be important. She's going to pop in the second one. She'll be yep. real important. Yeah. But they, <laughs> some of the editing around that is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, it's pretty slow-paced. I'm surprised that it's done as well as it has because it's kind of slow and meticulous in a way that's not very typical... It's very different than Marvel movies, for example. Yeah, I mean, it's been talked about as this sort of really unfilmable series of books because of the slow pacing Mm. and the very, like, deliberate world building of Frank Herbert. But, uh, yeah, I am a bit surprised, too, that it's done so well. And it seems to have a sort of mass appeal about it. I don't know. But, like, visually, it's kind of cool and interesting. Yeah, it looks great. So it does sell itself Mm. in that sense. But Uh, it's something a little bit self-serious and kind of a lack of humor I mean, that's the big difference, I feel, between this and the David Lynch one. Because the David Lynch one, it's weird, it's funny, it's really ugly. Like, the Harkonnen... Yeah, I love those designs. They're great. Uh, they're so over-the-top nasty yeah. and pedophile and sweaty, fat bodies. In the new one, they're much more clean, they're dark, but they're not really disgusting so much. Both films have great casting, I think. But I I really like the casting of the bad guys in the old one. Yeah. I don't really have any relation to the books. I I never read them. I'm sad that Sting didn't reprise his role. Yeah, that would have been crazy. (laughs) I think they actually just cut out that role entirely from there. And there's this thing about in the David Lynch film, they're all redheads, the evil people. And I imagine they might be in the books as well. But in the in the new film, they're all bald. So I guess uh, either to save stigma from red-haired people or maybe do it's just... Do bald people really need more people bullying them? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I guess they do. I guess, I no, guess they do. Course. I guess they're evil. <laughs> yes. But yeah, With their hellish I, I mean, Villeneuve is a quite different director than Lynch. Like He doesn't use a lot of humor, I think, in no. his movies. Yeah, I really like him mm. as a director, mm. but it's usually quite like a bit somber, his movies. Yeah, that's true. There's something a bit more melancholic about his, his style. Sure. And they both take their time often and they, they dwell on images and stuff. I love but, that, though. Uh, but in a very different way. And Lynch isn't so much in that mode. I mean, I think he just embraces this weirdo space opera-ness. For sure. Much more. Lynch yeah. is a lot weirder. I mean, he's, well, he's a true weirdo. And uh, it informs the Dune <laughs> adaptation for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think his initial edit of that film was like five hours long. So I guess he also would have had a couple of films if he had the chance. But uh, yeah. we'll never I mean, see the that, real Dune we all wanted to see was Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah, but, uh, that would have been something. Truly. Yeah. And compared to that, I mean, I'm sure David Lynch's version was super mainstream compared to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably, yeah. And that also sounded like it had an amazing cast. All these uh, At soundtrack. I mean, uh, Pink Floyd was going to make the music. Mm, I mean, hello. Salvador Dali was playing one of the villains, I think. That's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was a magical project. But the thing that's nice about Dune, I think, also in terms of David Lynch, is that the casting turned out to be really important. That's how he discovered Kyle MacLachlan and a couple of other uh, character actors that kind of pop up in Lynch's stuff throughout. Yeah, it was Kyle MacLachlan's first film with Lynch. Mm. And uh, I wouldn't say he's amazing in Dune, but since Dune, he's done so much cool stuff. Well, he comes into his own in a lot of other films, I think, 
I think Blue Velvet is the first one where he, he starts to shine. Yeah. And uh, he's brilliant in Twin Peaks, of course. Definitely. And in The Return, he's... Even he's, better in The Return. He's kind of amazing, I think. Extremely striking. And I the mean, way... he's playing like five different versions of Dale Cooper. Mm. And everyone is interesting and good. Yeah. That's such a feat of acting. It's very interesting and impressive, I think. But um, I think the David Lynch Dune film is more like a fun romp. Like, <laughs> if you want that serious stuff, then of course yeah. the It's been a long time since I saw Mm. the Lynch Dune. I remember it as kind of campy. Yeah, definitely campy. And not so self-serious in a way, but it also does that fantasy epic thing that's... I mean, that's what annoys me a little bit about both of them. It's about this guy who's chosen one. Yeah, it's the uh, He comes to this other planet of the other people and he's their chosen one. This rich guy, son of this huge rich family. It's like uh, Jeff Bezos' kid. He comes to... uh, he comes to Africa, and uh, he's the Africa's chosen. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. Oh, my God. No, and it's kind of off-putting. Yeah, yeah. And it's so boring. I'm so tired of the chosen one. Yeah. Of course, I've never read Dune. I'm sure it's way better in the books, but... Yeah, who can say? Not us. Not us. Mere mortals who haven't read the books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, once you read them, you, you don't stop talking about them, so... Well, <laughs> is that sort of like a disease, or...? Yeah, I think so. Like, every person I know that's read it is like, you can't shut the fuck up about it. So. Yeah. I guess that's how we relate to Tolkien, though, Sykes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, I, I don't... Uh, I can definitely relate to that. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see it. Yeah, you should. It's good. I haven't seen a bad movie from him, though, so... I think my favorite of his films is Prisoners. Yeah, Prisoners is really good. That's such a great thriller. Yeah, he kind of allows himself to go pretty far with that film, like the intensity of it and the ambiguity of it. Yeah, I love that movie. Like, I'm not not the hugest science fiction fan. Mm -hmm. I love a lot of science fiction, but often for me it gets a bit like, um, I don't know, it's just, it can be tricky to pull off really well. But Prisoners is a lot more low-key, and it's essentially a kind of a typical thriller. But it's it's just done so tightly yeah. and so good. And the acting is so, so mm. good. Hugh Jackman is perfect in that film. It kind of reminds me of Fincher a bit. It's like yeah. so meticulous. Yeah, not accidentally. It kind of reminds a bit of uh, his uh, Zodiac. Yeah. It has some similarities to that. Definitely. I like Prisoners more than Zodiac. I, I do as well, I think. I mean, it is also a very good movie, and they're doing kind of different things. But I like the character exploration better in Prisoners. For sure. I think Prisoners is a better movie, but... I I gotta say, I love just rewatching Zodiac. Mm-hmm. It's such a eminently watchable. And movie. they both got Jake Gyllenhaal, which is good. Yeah, he's great. I he's fucking great. love him as an actor. Yeah. Donnie yeah. fucking Darko. Yeah, ever since Donnie Darko has just fucking continued to fucking yeah. knock it out the park. Really. So. Yeah, he's great. He's good because he can do like really weird character actor things and he can do pretty kind of straight drama like leading man stuff as well. Yeah. I like him more when he goes into the weird shit like Nightcrawler and stuff but uh, he's extremely competent in that way. <laughs> he's, I gotta say he's just really good at being creepy when he yeah, wants to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean Nightcrawler is such an off-putting guy. Yeah. He's great. He's mm. so he's so watchable. Mm. Darko is also kind of interesting to talk about in terms of Lynch because it's it's one of the more successful kind of Lynch-like. It's more like a teen, emo, angsty, surreal, time-loopy, more of a puzzle box again, I guess. But uh, Donnie Darko? Yeah. But it works in its way. The way it uses music is a bit more kind of Tarantino. I kind of like it a lot. It has a lot of like memorable quotes yeah. and a lot of like iconic stuff about it. And yeah, it also has a very clear sense of space, I think, and, and time, not least. Yeah. It's been a while since I watched that, actually. Mm. I think it's due for a rewatch. I like that movie. If you were to pick like a part of 
Lynch's filmography that you prefer, like early, mid or late? Where do you personally kind of uh, enjoy yourself more? I don't know. Like I, I kind of enjoy the latest stuff he's mm. been doing, like The Return. I think that's some of the best shit he's done. So. Well, I would agree, yeah. I love parts of all of his career, really. I love the 80s movies. Yeah. The 90s movies are great. Mm. Lost Highway and Malone Drive. Yeah. They're classics, in my opinion. I especially like Lost Highway. Yeah. I think that's such a creepy movie. And it's so beautiful. Yeah, beautiful and creepy. Mm. And I fucking I love that pale guy at the party. Yeah, I think yeah. It's just... He's yeah. scary. He's so memorable. Yeah. It's so fucking scary. He yeah. looks like a character out of a Fritz Long movie. Mm. So <laughs> this weird expressionist character in, the, in a fucking thriller. It's interesting, Lost Highway. It also has very tense atmosphere, the very strong mood, like just the apartment in that film. Yeah. It sure. feels so starkly alive. It's it's weird how he manages to pull that off. Yeah, I mean it's it's also like so oppressive, yeah. the mood in the movie. Mm. It has such tension. Mulholland Drive also has that. Those movies are kind of similar in a vibe, yeah. in a sense. They kind of stick together with Eraserhead a lot. It's these core surreal films. Yeah, they're uh, they're like way more surreal than something mm. like uh, Wild at Heart, right? Mm. They are like really confusing and uh, surreal yeah. at times, and it's difficult to follow the plot line. Yeah, they, they break expectations in terms of plot and story. For sure. I think those two movies in particular kind of cemented his sort of reputation as this sort of weirdo when it comes to movies and sometimes making like unexplainable shit that's difficult to understand, which is kind of true. But Because it's, it's funny, like in the 90s, you know, when he was doing like Twin Peaks and Straight Story, and he was really showing that he could do huge mainstream appeal also with elephant man i yeah. guess uh, and that that as a differentiator between like he's very like densely surreal absurdist films pretty interesting i think it is interesting but i always felt like what he really likes is that type of surreal fucking freakishly weird <laughs> movie space and it always felt like the more straight-laced movies weren't really what he like passionately wants to do i mean i'm sure he was interested in the stuff stray story and uh, elephant man and stuff like that but i think his heart is in like the eraser head uh, mood really well it's it's married so perfectly in twin peaks yeah that's the beautiful thing about twin peaks though and what makes it such a mainstream success mm. because it has all the sort of weird lynchian characters but a seemingly sort of normal yeah. plot but then it gets gradually weirder and weirder yeah, it's it's such a genius move to take this kind of daytime drama and I mean I feel like there's this pretty big time gap between like Twin Peaks and, and the golden age of television but like having a daytime drama that has an overarching story and characters that develop in a way that's much more film like. He's not the first and the only person who's done it, no. but I feel like it's deeply influential. Uh... Twin Peaks sort of heralded the golden age of television mm. for sure. Mm. And it took like seven or eight years before it got really started with HBO and stuff. Yeah. But Twin Peaks was doing that in like yeah. 1991. It's very, very impressive. Yeah. And I love the fact that they took sort of a known genre. Like people are familiar with the elements of it mm. and then subvert it in a way that's really interesting. Yeah. Like the sentimental music and yeah. the stuff. And then when you watch the episodes, suddenly it's like this weird jazzy music. Yeah. And like the tone shifts are really interesting. And of course, the, the soundtrack is so good uh, uh, with uh, Antonio Badalamenti. Yeah, he 
makes such iconic music. Those creepy songs, like yeah. uh, the creepy parts of Laura's theme mm. and stuff, they're so iconic and mm. good and really set the like tone for the creepy parts. Mm. And then you get to the chorus part of it and it sort of gets sentimental yeah. and like daytime TV and then it goes back into mm. this like really unsettling mood. I love the way the music shifts between mm. what you would expect from a daytime drama and something you would expect in a sort of an experimental horror movie or yeah. something. But it's also, you know, just combining like a crime story with a daytime drama with like surrealist horrors in a sense or yeah. absurdist but elements, symbolism. For sure. But it, like, it's the, so unique. It's super unique. Like nothing like that happened done before. And also like the central whodunit mystery mm. was so compelling. Yeah. I felt like it, it dropped off a bit when you learned who the killer was, but it really like rose from the ashes with the return, I think. The second season is fraught. Some episodes, you know, typically the episodes that he makes, but he directed an episode that's very Blue Velvet-like. Like this scene where Laura's cousin, she's in this roadhouse and singing. Those scenes have very kind of strong Blue Velvet vibes. Yeah. He's kind of bringing other parts of his uh, filmography into... Uh, some of those episodes in the second season are really good. And then you have like the face of the character inside the grip of the drawer. <laughs> yeah, the character that gets trapped in the drawer handle. Yeah, kind of like a, like a CD room game from the 90s. That's, that's really good. Uh, <laughs> but there's points in the later half of the second season that really... Because up until that point, it's been this really interesting sort of subversion of daytime TV. Mm. But at some points during the second season, yeah. it sort of turns into daytime TV. Yeah. and Really just, soppy and yeah, stupid. and it's just garbage. Mm. It uh, ends well, though, and then it continues great. It does end on a great cliffhanger. Yeah. I will say that. And of course, Twin Peaks is such a classic, and it's been so influential. Uh. And it has so many like cool details that I think Lynch is really good at, like small character details. Mm. Like uh, Dale Cooper's like habits are so funny to me. Yeah. Like uh, his insistence that like, every day you have to give yourself a little gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> nice. It's a nice attitude. Yeah. And it's also nice to have such an upbeat, optimistic mm. FBI agent. Like, yeah. he, usually they're like these hard-boiled, brooding, anti-social uh, assholes, usually. Like, yeah. Either that or they're just idiots or something. Yeah, right. But uh, He's such a happy-go-lucky and intuitive guy. He uses dreams. To, yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's so Lynchian, yeah. this intuitiveness. There's so much of Lynch in him, I think. Yeah. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin's appeal is just is so important for that series. Like, yeah. It's so good. For sure. He's such a great part of that. Really brings that sort of energy that none of the other characters bring. Mm. But there's a lot of sort of delightful madness in it too. Like mm. Leland Palmer. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's great. Yeah. Ray Wise. And he great. has some great bit roles in Tim and Eric. Yeah, awesome show. Great job. Yeah. And spread. he brings a lot of that energy to yeah. that as well. He does have this sort of madness to his acting sometimes yeah. that I really love. Yeah, there's just so much good stuff about it. Mm. But there's definitely, like, drawbacks to the second season stuff. And it's kind of sad that it ended and then didn't get picked back up until way, way, way later. Well, I guess that the point was that uh, Lynch had other stuff to do and he handed over to other people and, you know, it lost focus. And when the opportunity came many years later and he picked it up and it was his own thing, then it turned yeah. out great. I mean, because Twin Peaks without him just doesn't have that sort of unpredictable madness. Mm. It also shows how good he is with actors. For sure. And drama. He's great at that stuff. It's not just surreal weirdness. Yeah. It's like I mentioned, he does have a magic touch with actors. And uh, without him, mm. like the episodes he doesn't direct, a lot more hammy. Yeah. He has this very particular sensibility, even when he's doing like TV 
and especially with the return is just fucking insane mm. uh he's so almost obnoxious in the choices he makes like extremely long takes and stuff mm. and i love that he just insists on it but my feeling about that is like in the way that twin peaks kind of as you say, heralded or pointed towards where TV would go. I feel like the kind of choices he makes in The Return, where it's not so plot-focused, and he'll let the camera dwell on seemingly non-very important stuff, and the way he kind of shifts episode to episode, and it's not really like films either. I kind of feel like that might um, point the way forward for where TV series could go in the future. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, the series is like almost an evolved version of what he does in his movies. He's able to do that over a much longer timeline mm. and, in, and it's sort of a different context where he's able to focus on individual parts in a much larger way. And it's so fascinating. Like, yeah. I think episode eight... Yeah. It's probably one of his one of the best things he's ever done, <laughs> in my opinion. And the ending is mm. so so good mm. and kind of existentially horrific. I just love the way he works with expectations in that third season. The way you're just always waiting for Cooper, and there's a lot of things like going back to Twin Peaks, the place, and you know he's not there to satisfy your nostalgic expectations, but he's got something better up his sleeve, really, because yeah. it could be just a very pleasing, hammy, just recreation of the old thing. And yeah, you know, just... there's a lot of series that have done that. They yeah. have gone back and they've kind of recreated parts of it, and it always feels kind of tacked on and and yeah, not like as genuine. It's not necessarily bad to sort of. Like like do what the fans want mm. and bring back beloved characters mm. and stuff but it's usually difficult to do in an artistically interesting way mm. lynch just doesn't care about it at all mm. and really goes out of his way to almost not do what the fans want yeah. and uh, the series is so much better for it in my opinion. and and he's a you know he's a different man at this point i mean he's i guess we'll talk about it later for the next episode but you know he's so much more informed by the stuff from inland empire yeah it's a completely different filmatic project from from where in the 90s what he was doing yeah wasn't mulholland drive supposed to be like this uh, series that was supposed to be a spin-off of twin peaks yeah, I think it was initially meant to tie in with the Twin Peaks universe. Oh, wow, uh, and I, I think that. that they made some choices later that sort of separated it. Well, I'm kind of glad they did, honestly. So uh, I just looked it up, yeah. and uh, apparently, according to Mark Frost, they were working on a spin-off of Twin Peaks, and Mark Frost lived on Mulholland Drive at the time and thought it would be a good title for a spin-off that centered around Audrey Horn moving to Hollywood. It was going to oh, be yeah. Mulholland Drive. And then uh, apparently David Lynch removed a bunch of the elements and it sort of turned into its own thing. Oh, yeah, I can see that. That's interesting. Would be cool to have a fucking show with Audrey Horn as the central character. Yeah, she is so great. Cheryl and Finch, is, she's really good. But I, I love what Mulholland Drive became too. It's, oh, yeah, it's so <laughs> It's a good. fucking weird movie. Yeah, it is so... Um, it's probably his most central film. It has this very hypnotic feel it's very engaging emotionally and it feels very vulnerable i think it's probably one of those movies that feels like most essentially lynchian yeah. in a way not one of my favorites of his but i think it's a very good movie I think it is one of my favorites. And it also feels like one of his most personal films. Like a lot of the things he's dealing with there. It's more like, you know, Los Angeles life, I guess, you know, not getting to pick your actress or yep. it feels like there's a lot of his own personal investments and, and experiences that's underlying in that film. Yeah. And it, it has some really, really good scenes in mm. it, some really iconic moments. It's also 
I think like that's when his style and his the contents of his movies they start to become like really dark, mm, yeah. really unsettling. Yeah. Previously, like before, I would say Lost Highway, there was definitely elements of that, but it, there was also this levity and humor a lot more present. And Blue Velvet as well. It it has some serious darkness, but like the main characters, they're young, they're naive, they're open, yeah. they're interested. They meet the dark world, but they don't end up there necessarily. Yeah, for sure. Whereas in Lost Highway and Holland Drive, the darkness is sort of in the main characters as yeah. well. And, yeah. and it sort and of permeates everything and creates this really creepy atmosphere. Yeah. And that's interesting. But it's certainly sort of maybe less watchable to a mainstream audience. It's interesting. The films he makes, they aren't horror movies, right? But they use a lot of horror elements, and especially from Lost Highway and onwards. You know, I, I remember many years ago seeing Eraserhead categorized as horror and be really perplexed. And, you know, I get it because you have a set number of genres and you have to put the DVDs in this section and that section. And where are you going to put it? You're not going to put it on the drama or comedy, but it's, it's not really <laughs> I horror. I mean, it's just as much comedy as horror, in my opinion. It doesn't fit either of those. No. It's definitely no. not something. But he uses horror elements and he uses them really well. And he uses it more from Lost Highway onwards. Like this, yep. as you say, this pale character is monstrous and the fate of the characters, they're so... You know, in a lot of horror movies, there's often a very... Um, deterministic vibe like things are spiraling downwards they're yep. gonna end badly and that sense is a lot stronger in his later works yeah and not just that i feel like there's a sense of tragedy to his later works that make them sort of so miserable but also they're so beautiful the cinematography is gorgeous mm, like, it's mm. so they're so beautifully crafted yeah, yeah. And the music also really good. The soundtrack of Lost Highway is really cool. For sure. It has a lot of like Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie and like yeah. really, really dope ass shit. Yeah, it's really stylish. For sure. And I think Marilyn Manson has a role in it or something. Yeah, I, I seem to recall something like that. Yeah. He's a huge piece of shit, turns out. Yeah. There's been a lot of controversy around him. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not sure I'm so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. I mean, I, I guess I thought he had some interesting things to say at some point when I was younger, but um, I've never been a huge fan of his music. I mean, you can have interesting things to say and still be a huge piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, I, my point is just I don't really relate very strongly to his music or his brand or whatever. I guess I was kind of disinterested in him yeah. in general. I listened to a lot of his stuff earlier, but it's sad to yeah. find out people are like huge, abusing piece of shit. It's like, <sighs> another one? It seems so common. It's but like, you know who's not like that? I'm pretty sure David Lynch is a good guy. Oh, well, not according to Michael J. Anderson, the short person from Twin Peaks. I think he claimed, like, David Lynch murdered someone or, like, he was a pedophile. And, like, he claimed, like, some insane shit. But apparently it was pretty obvious that Michael J. Anderson was having some mental issues at the time. And he retired from acting. David Lynch's daughter spoke up for him mm. and said, like, that's just bullshit. That mm. never happened. Uh, those accusations and yeah. nobody's been able to verify any of it it just mm. seems like insane ranting and he was ranting quite a bit yeah 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 i got that he had some difficulties man it sucks though because he's also a great actor in my opinion yeah yeah we talked about him before as well he has a great presence and but you know I, I get a really good vibe of david lynch like he seems very wholesome i think i agree i agree like i mentioned earlier i think there's a lot of lynch in dale cooper mm. there's a lot of that sort of optimism mm. and sort of willingness to go with the flow and i don't know i agree that i get a sort of good vibe from him have you uh, have you been watching his weather reports <laughs> no i haven't you know about this no i'm not sure if he's still doing it but for a long time like 
Like the pandemic and stuff, uh, he had daily weather reports. And there were just like two minute videos on YouTube where he'd look at the sky and oh, it seems like there's a bit of grey there, but uh, yeah, I can see the sky's gonna loosen up. And uh, and he had this catchphrase which he would say every time, and it's something like golden sunshine, uh, something, something uh, each day. Right. <laughs> he, ha- he had this catchphrase he was saying. Knowing I couldn't remember it now, but um, now and again he'd say something else. Maybe he'd call out somebody's birthday or, or had some like little thing he would talk about. But mostly, they were just you know him sitting in his studio looking through the window up at the sky and saying a couple of words about that and uh, he'd also do these uh, short videos from his studio where he was kind of putting some wood with some welded iron and and, and just making some kind of weird thing and gluing things together (laughs) it's kind of these charming little videos (laughs) he was doing and i like it it's interesting you know he he was really early out with creating serious content for the internet like his website and He's always been quite forward thinking in that regard, which is why I I hope he keeps making stuff. Like, I really hope he doesn't retire too soon. Yeah, well, essentially, I mean, he is kind of always making stuff like, yeah. you know, I would love for him to make another movie or another series yeah, or just more music or whatever. But um, well, the music, I think, is like kind of an acquired taste, like the vocals are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of it, I think, is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I think musically, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think the vocals usually are a bit like too much for me yeah <laughs> I, I get what he's saying but like I, I think he's like day to day you know in a studio just making things all yeah. the time I think he's kind of always creating yeah yeah but that's uh, good I, I love that and I hope he keeps making music by all means I just I would love to see another like full-length feature film yeah. from him or a new series that would be fucking amazing you know, I wouldn't hate it if Eden Alimpo was his last film but I think it would have been interesting if he was allowed to make like final film for Twin Peaks because yeah. he had the first series and the film and the film which you know wasn't so much liked back in the day and got reevaluated, and it, it really is very good I think which one Fire Walk With oh, Me oh yeah Fire Walk With Me is probably one of my favorite movies mm. of his it's mm. so underrated I mm. think the acting is amazing the cinematography is so beautiful and it's so cool to see Twin Peaks in this beautiful format uh, instead of, you know, the 4 by 3 broadcast mm. format. And, you know, it kind of recontextualized Twin Peaks a little bit, which I guess people didn't so much like then. But um, Yeah, I think it's been re- re-evaluated yeah. and it has definitely got sort of a, a reappraisal mm. and it, it should have. But I agree. I think it would be really interesting to see sort of a, a modern firewalk with me. I guess we're probably not getting another series. I mean, it was great, but it didn't do very well financially. And maybe someone's happy to throw money at him. I hope so. But uh, making a film, that seems a little bit more feasible, like a theatrical film. I mean, if he had the opportunity, I'm sure he'd knock it out of the park. For sure. I mean, I don't think anybody projected Twin Peaks The Return to do very well financially. I think the people who backed that project, I mean, there were... Probably think they were going to recoup their costs and make some money of it, but well, I don't think they plan on it being like this huge success. Well, I mean, the origin of Twin Peaks was, so I'm pretty sure they hoped for a huge success. There was some back and forth in the production about how they were going to make it, and at some point, because he had written it, and uh, I think they were backing out or wanted to change something, and he kind of set his foot down and said, if I don't get to direct all episodes, then there's nothing, and... It was a bit back and forth. Yeah, there was also a, a budget issue. Yeah, But yeah. that was straightened out. And he wanted to do it his way. Yeah. Like, have total, like, final cut and everything. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I can't believe anybody looked at the scripts for a couple of those episodes and thought, this is going to be a mainstream banger. I mean, 
It's pretty far out. It's pretty <laughs> so far out. And I love that. But mm. it's definitely not something that... But, you know, maybe TV execs don't really read scripts. Who knows? I mean, they might just look at the franchise and think about the money and think about, you know, the format and stuff. I think a lot of them are, like, actually just automatons inside <laughs> suits. And they're just shells, actually. Lizard men. Probably not even lizard. <laughs> I think probably just some sort of basic machinery, oh. like a, like a wind-up clock. I think that's most of them. Wind-up clock. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I think it's likely anyway. Yeah. So you get wind up thinking about that sort of stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not really. Well, anyway, we've had a, a lovely chat talking about all things Lynch and whatever. Yes. Unpleasant fireside chat. Yeah. And uh, we'd like to thank you for listening to us talking. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. Music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Yuskarnin and Svera Ogor. The artwork was made by me, Thomas Emerson-Balmbra. And I guess that's it for now. We'll see you with some more Lynch talk later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.